just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you in the word. We ask you to guide and lead us. Show us what you would want us to see from this. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 21. We're going to be starting at verse 1. And we're in a spot toward the end here, this uh, Second Samuel, where it's just kind of a compilation of a bunch of things that have happened in Israel. There's not really uh, much date or anything on, mo- on most of it. We don't know when they happened or what, what really happened here. It's just, here's a bunch of stuff <laughs> about David's life at the end of the, at the, end of the book. Uh, part of it does show the consequences of sin. This section we're in shows the consequence of sin. Uh, and so we'll see, we'll look at this uh, part. Verse 1. Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years after, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for the Saul and his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but were the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn to them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you, and wherefore shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of, his, of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We have no silver, nor, nor, nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shall you kill any man in Israel. And he said, what, what you shall say, that I will do for you. And they answered the king, The man that consumed us and devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining any in any of the coast of Israel, let seven men of, the, of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah and of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. give them." So we're going to stop there for just a moment. We've got some history to look over as we look at this. So we're starting out, there was a famine in the days of David. We don't know when this story is taking place. There is no time marker here other than a famine. And nowhere in this book is it talked about a famine. And I can't find anywhere else that talks about a famine. So we have no way to know where this fits in David's reign. I'm going to say it's probably somewhat earlier because Saul's sons are still alive uh, at this point. And it says that they had a famine for three years. Now that's a pretty long time to have a famine. Uh, and so David takes him three years to get there, but he finally goes to God and says, what's going on? All right. Uh, and God says that it's because of Saul and his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. We do not have a scriptural reference as to when Saul killed the Gibeonites. I searched very hard for one. I even searched a couple of commentaries to see if anybody had any idea. But God says that he went out and killed it, and they obviously see that God killed, you know, that Saul tried to kill him. So we're not debating the story. There's just no other reference to when Saul did this. And it says that he did it out of zeal. He was trying to please God and, and please the people. Now the question is, does anybody remember who the Gibeonites are? Only because you went back to only because you went back to Joshua chapter nine to to find out. 
In Joshua chapter 9, the children of Israel have come across the Jordan River. They have defeated uh, Jericho. They have defeated Ai. They have defeated the five armies, and they're getting ready to march on into battle. And the Gibeonite people decide nobody can stand up against Israel. They've been told to kill everybody. And if you remember, they dressed up in old ragged clothes, put moldy bread in their in their bag, their ba- uh, the satchels, and and beat up satchels. And when they and when they showed up to Joshua, they go, "We've come to sue for peace." And when we started, this bread was fresh. We had new sandals on our on our feet, and our clothes were 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 really wonderful. We we have been traveling months to see you. And the children of Israel, if you remember, Joshua and them never asked God. Shall we make peace with them? They made an agreement with them to protect them. And the very next day, you know, within a, within a week, the next day or so, the people around Gibeah found out that they had made a peace treaty with, with uh, the Israelites. They attacked Gibeah. Gibeah called for Israel. They found out that they had been tricked. They, they went in. They defeated the enemies of Gibeah. And Joshua told them, because you have lied to us, we're going to let you live as we promised, but you will be our servants from this point forward. And they were made hewers of wood and carriers of water. So that's the history of the Gibeonites. So they have been the servants of Israel. They're part of the Amorite people. They're part of the original tribes of that land. The only one that managed to get, get away from being destroyed because they had made an agreement with Israel by treachery and because it was a treacherous agreement, they were willing to become the slaves of the Israelites rather than, than die. Along comes Saul, sometime 400 years later, and tries to wipe them out. And there's nothing in here that says that they had a reason to it, and God's answer to it evidently would tell there's no reason for this. All right? Uh, this would be like, uh, well, let's say... Uh, when the pilgrims landed and made peace, well, no, we, we violated that all the time. Let's say the pilgrims landed, and then, you know, in this year, we decided to go kill anybody who was related to the pilgrims. Yeah. All right, 400 years later, you know, 300 years later, 400 years later, we go, let's just go kill them because we want to kill them. They, they're not part of us. Now, that's not quite the way this was, because these people never became Israelites. They were always keeping their relations up. Uh, but they were living peacefully. They were doing, they were fulfilling their part of the bargain. They were being the servants of Israel. All right? So they weren't doing anything wrong, and, and Saul decided that, well, I was told to kill the Amalekites. I was told to kill these people. I'll just go kill them because they're not, they're not Israelites and violate their treaty. So that was the story of the Gibeonites, and Saul basically attacks them for no reason, and God says it's because of Saul. Now, why did he delay in this? I don't know. Is this really early in David's, David's career, even at that? Why did Saul get away with it, and why didn't it happen with Saul? Don't know. But that tells us that when sin has consequences, the consequences don't always show up immediately. And we've talked about this. You know, it's, it's really, you know, people who overeat, if the consequences of overeating showed up instantly, we really wouldn't overeat, you know. Uh, I eat that extra donut and a, and a quarter ounce of bowl shows up on my side. I eat another donut and a, another quarter inch of bowl shows up on the side. I'd stop eating very quickly. It's not that way. Sin always has consequences long term. I was just saying, you can hide it, but it doesn't stay hidden. doesn't stay hidden. And in this case, Saul's sin has come back to haunt him. 
and it's not come back to haunt him, it's come back to haunt Israel. And it could be because there was no repentance from their sin that it comes at this point, but for whatever reason, God sends it in David's reign. Uh, well, we're going to find out that later on as we go through this where they come up with some of these kids. Some of them are from his concubines, which wouldn't have been the crown princes. A uh, couple, uh, five of them come from Michael, and we will remind you back a while ago that Michael said that she had no kids. She lost, she lost what kids she did have. <laughs> which when I went to Chronicles, I didn't understand why it showed her having kids. You know, and that's one of the controversies people have. Say, so it says she has kids, and here it says she had none. Here it says he got killed. So she didn't have any left. But the problem is that this comes after the first time we mention it, and this is why this story is out of place. And we've got to remember, oftentimes the Bible has stories that are out of sync. When you read the book of Genesis, uh, we get to Abraham's life. We get to the end of Abraham's life. It says he died. And then we go to Isaac's life. And we go, end up going back some 60 years or so to get Isaac's life. We finish all of Isaac's life. And then we start Jacob's life. And we go back to, to run Jacob's life. Okay, so the Bible overlaps. But it doesn't, when you read it, unless you actually piece together how long these people lived and, and when their children were born and all of that, you go, you, you don't realize you know, that there's an overlap there. And this happens a lot in the Bible. They just kind of toss in stories that from, from, from the past or present, so there's not always a constant chronological flow. Uh, up until this point, we know we've had a good chronological flow. David got his kingdom, this happened, this happened, this happened, and we see him getting older, and then all of a sudden we throw in this story from sometime in the past. And like I say, this last portion is all kind of just thrown together. Uh, like the, let's write, let's write the rest of the stories. <laughs> so this is a flashback, let's say, let's call it that. So David gets the message from God, this is because of Saul and what he did to the Gibeonites. So David calls the Gibeonites. Okay, it's Saul's fault for what he did to them. Let's find out what we can do to, to help them out. And he goes... He says to them, and this, then we have this little sidebar that the Gibeonites are not the children of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. All right? Little historical note so that in case people forget their history from jo Joshua, you know, hey, these aren't Israelites that Saul tried to kill. And yet God's judging them because non-Israelites were killed when Saul broke the covenant to them. God cares about Gentiles, always has cared about Gentiles, in spite of what the Jews tended to believe. All through the Old Testament, we see of God's care for the Gentiles. And all through the book of Leviticus, when he gave the rules, he said the same rules apply to you and to any strangers. And you know, when it came to the offerings, you, they can offer these offerings, and yet the Jews isolated the, the tabernacle and the, temp, and the temple from Gentiles. And we see God's mercy to Gentiles all throughout the scriptures. Rahab, in the city of Jericho, which was to be destroyed, protected the, the spies and was said, all I want to do is have you all protect me and I'll become one, I'll become one of your people. You know, we see the same thing with Ruth. A Moabitist, hated by the Jews, becomes very uh, prevalent in the town of Bethlehem. 
and is part of the line of Jesus, you know, same as Rahab. God has always cared for the Gentiles. He protected Nineveh when Jonah preached against them and said, you're going to be destroyed. They repented, and God said, okay, you get a little more time. You know, he sees it, see it all through the scriptures that God has always loved the world. And Israel's job had always been to go tell the world about God. And they said, well, we're special. We're not telling God. We're not telling the people. We're, we're not telling those dogs about God at all. We want them to die. You know, and we kind of laugh about that. But, you know, there's a lot of churches that do the same thing. It's us. If they want to come to church, well, we might accept them if they, turn, you know, if they become a Christian. And we're not going out. We're not going out to where they are. And that's a sad, sad way to look at it. We're not going to try to help them. We're not going to do anything with them because they're just dead dogs that are going to hell. And you know, we don't want them to ruin our, ruin our church by coming in with their bad, bad influences. So, you know, we laugh about this attitude about the Jews, but we need to be very careful about that. But we reach out to the world. We love the world enough to tell them the gospel. Not to love the world and their system, but love the people and try to, try to witness to them. And uh, so it says that Saul had tried to kill them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. And again, this little parenthesis we don't know anything about. We don't know when Saul tried to go out and kill them. Uh, probably to try to make the people happy. You know, look at, look at this. We're going we're gonna to kill all the, the foreigners. Yeah. And we think this is a new idea in our, in our day, day, daytime, and it's been the same way forever. Nothing new under the sun. So therefore, uh, then David says in verse 3, Wherefore, David said unto them, What should I do for you, that I can make atonement or to pacify you, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? In other words, he's assuming that they have probably cried out to God against them, which is probably true. They've been around Judah, uh, Israel long enough. They know, they know of God, and they're probably asking the God of Israel to punish. And he's saying, what can I do to get you guys to you know, bless us. Uh, and the Gideon has given quite an, you know, uh, we will have no silver or gold of Saul, or don't give us money. And then it says, neither for us shall you kill any man of Israel. In other words, almost in, it, you know, we can't kill somebody. You know, uh, we can't kill them, You're not, and we don't want his money. In other words, what they've told him is, we'd like somebody dead. You know, we'd like Saul dead, but he's dead already. Uh, and so, you, and then David says, well, what will you, you know, just tell me what you want and I will do it. David has put himself under oath here. You know, he's promised them, if you say something, I'm going to do it. So he's, and I can't, I almost think that David understands they're going to want some lives. I think what it is here, neither shall, neither for us shall you kill any man in Israel. I think they're telling him, you know, you're not going to kill an Israelite for us. All right? I think it's one of those statements where kind of, it's the way that an alien would think. You know, your people are more important than us. There's no way, you know. I think they were saying, we want, we want, we want uh, blood for blood. But they're your people. Are you going to kill any of your people for us? I think that's what I see when I, when I read this. You know, David, it's your people. You're not going to kill anybody for us. We're just, we're just foreign. We're just slaves. You know, we're just servants. You're not going to give us the vengeance we desire. That's how I read that. 
and David puts himself under oath. He knows what they're he knows they're going to ask for some lives. And he says, "What shall, what you say I what ye shall what you shall say that will I do." He's put himself under an oath basically. You know, just tell me what you want and I'll take care of it. That's kind of a dangerous thing for the king to say. I mean, they could have asked for thousands of lives. If they, you know, I don't know how many people they lost. They've been in the kingdom for 400 years. They could be very, pretty large uh, population, and Saul could have killed thousands of them. They could be asking for thousands of lives, and David has put himself under an agreement to do whatever they've asked. And they answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining among you in any of the coasts of Israel. So he says, we're, we're going to take this of Saul. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose, and the king said, I will give them. So they go, we want seven of Saul's sons. Now, sons is always kind of generic in the scriptures because it can mean grandsons, great-grandsons, just as fathers can mean father, grandfather, great-grandfather. All right? We know that most of Saul's sons have died. If, you know, Jonathan, you know, all of, his, all of his oldest sons died with him in battle. Uh, but he still has grandsons out there. And that's what David's going to give him grandsons and uh, and in one case actual actual sons but they were not the crowned sons because they were of the concubine and concubines kids had no right to inheritance the concubines were kept and and provided for but their and their children while they were children would be provided for but as soon as they were old enough to get out on their own they were kicked out on the street now, a really nice father you know, of that child might have given them some money to get started, you know, given them some piece of land or some kind of inheritance, but they had no claim to the inheritance. So the concubine sons had no claim to the throne. All right, verse 7. But the king spared Meshivoseph, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Arai, whom she bore unto Saul, Armonai and Methibosheth. It's kind of interesting, the same name of the kid, same kid. And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for, for Adriel, the son of Bazariel, the Melholite, and she, he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hung them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven of them together, and they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. All right. So they say, we want, we want to have seven of Saul's children. Uh, pretty bold. They could, and with David's, with David's uh, statement, they could have asked for just about anything. So, but they asked for seven, seven of David's children, and they said that they would hang them. 
And when this reference to hanging does not mean like we think of hanging with a knotted, a knotted rope to kill them instantly. This was the idea of hanging them and exposing them to the weather and the birds and anything else that wanted to come along and destroy them. All right, this was, this was a harsh thing. Well, they've got, they've got quite a vengeance. I mean, he, we, we're not told how many of the people, but his attempt was to kill all of them. So we don't know how many he actually reduced them by. But you're right, it is kind of evil, but they have a, a, they have a legitimate claim against Saul, and they can't take it out against Saul. Technically, this is not something that should have been done by biblical law. Okay, because you can only punish the person who actually commits the crime under the, under the biblical rules. Now, the thing about this is, and it's kind of amazing, as much as David loves God, follows God, it appears to be a time when the Torah is not being taught. All right? Uh, we were, in the Torah, they were told that when you have a king, the king is to sit down and write his own copy of the Torah and read it daily. We know of no king in all of Israel that ever did that. All right? There's no king in Israel that has ever recorded that they wrote their own copy of the Torah. Many years later, we're going to have Josiah, when they were cleaning out the temple of all the junk that had been gathered in it because it became a junkyard, they find the word of God, and the first thing he does when it's read to him is tears his garments and, and goes and bows before God because of all the laws that they are violating. Because nobody has taught them all this time. The Levites and the priests were supposed to be the pre, uh, teachers. We only once in a while get mentioned of, of a priest doing anything. And even in David's time, the priests are not really doing much. He keeps two in Jerusalem. We just read about them and their sons. But it doesn't talk too much about them doing much more than making offerings. They don't do any teaching. We never see that teaching aspect that they were supposed to do. And David, for all of his love of God, is not well trained in the word of God. Even though he's, he gives an entire Psalm 119 that's all about the word of God, he doesn't seem to be well versed in it. The Jews, for, for most of their history, have done much like the Catholics do. This book is special. This book is so special, we don't want you to have a copy of it because it's got God's name in it. You can't, you can't use his name lightly. And then they would give you rules and, and their own interpretations of it. And for centuries, even in, in Christianity, nobody had a, had a Bible. The priest didn't have a Bible. The priests weren't even, weren't even expected to read the Bible. They were just supposed to teach the homilies sent to them by the Pope. You know, here's what you're teaching. Uh, well, nobody knew how to read either, but, but you know, even until the, the Gutenberg Press, most people did not have a, a copy of the Bible because they had to be handwritten. You know, and you think about how much writing went into that. Mark could do it. Mark, Mark could do it. <laughs> yeah. well, Mark, Mark could write his own copy, yes. Yeah. I think he pretty much has. Almost. Yeah. But, and even in the 1600s and 1700s, it wasn't unusual for the only Bible in a town to be in the church. And the pastor probably didn't even have his own copy. It was just the Bible that sat up in the front pew you know, was what you had. 
Now, the, con the first the Continental Congress in America actually printed Bibles to give out to all the citizens of the United States. Imagine if that was tried in this day and age. The first Continental Congress, who should really know what the Constitution said, printed Bibles for all the citizens. <laughs> but somehow, somehow they didn't know what they didn't know what we know about what they meant to write in the Constitution. <laughs> but so America was one of the first places where people had copies of the Bible. It doesn't mean they always read them. Now even today, it's the the Bible is the number one seller and the least read book in the world. Everybody has copies of the Bible in, in, in most of the world, but very few people have actually picked it up and read it. And it's been true for a long time. And it's really sad because of all the stuff in there that would keep them going. So the Gibeonites were bringing, they were violating the Jewish laws, but they're not Jews. And David allows this. He says, okay, I'll give you these seven men for you to hang up and torture. You know, uh, Quite a, quite a thing, but David's desperate too. He's had three years of famine. His people are hungry. And David is, as far as he's concerned, God told him that it's Saul's fault, so he's going to do whatever it takes to appease the people who have been violated by Saul. And sometimes it's kind of hard. Now, God is not saying the ends justify the means, but he's just telling us what happened. This is probably not what God wanted to do to solve the problem because it is not right, all right? They're, they're asking for a punishment of somebody who did not do the crime. Yeah, because David went and asked the Gideon, he didn't ask God what you done. Yeah, he, he, God told him what was wrong, and he didn't go to God and say, what do I do to fix it? He just says, okay, God, it's Saul's fault for, for attacking the Gideon, so let me find out what the Gideonites want in return. So I'm going to go fix it. But again, that's what most of us do all the time. We just jump up and say, hey, this is the problem. Maybe let me go fix it. Uh, I got a loan to fix it. I need this. Let me go, you know, let me figure out how to do it. We do it all the time. It's a bad problem. David's doing it here. God would have told him how to fix it. Simply been involved in freeing the Gibeonites from their service. Uh, who knows what God would have but David decides he's going to do it on his own. Now, God does bless them. He does give them, break the famine. Uh, but I don't think this is the way God wants to do it. Okay, God never says do something wrong to get the right result. And this is why we, we can know when we, when we talk to people and we counsel somebody and they go, well, I think God is telling me to do this and it's, and it's clearly against the Bible. It's not God telling them to do it. And we can yeah. speak very clearly, God did not tell you to do that. Well, how do you know? Because it violates scripture. God will never violate the rules that he has given us to do something else. That's not the way he is. He is good, and he will always do what's best. David did this way, and God says, okay, I'm going to bless it anyway, but it was not what was supposed to have been done. So we look at this and say, all right. So the king spared Meshivasheth, the son of Jonathan, Saul's son, pure and simply because he'd made a promise to Jonathan to take care of Jonathan's kids. If Jonathan had, more, had, had had more than one son, that son would have been protected as well. Jonathan would have, anybody born of Jonathan would have been protected. 
because of David's promise to Jonathan. He loved Jonathan. He was going to honor Jonathan no matter what. And then he says he took the two sons of Rizpah, and if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, you'll see that she was married. She was a concubine, and this is the one that caused the problem between uh, Saul's son that was trying to Shibbeth, uh, who was trying to take the kingdom, and Abner. Abner had slept with this woman, and that caused the problem. So she had some sons that uh, were Saul's sons. So David took those sons, and he names those sons. Uh, th those sons were named Armini and Meshivasheth. Meshivasheth must have been a very popular name back in that day. You know, two of Saul's kids were, were named that. <laughs> A kid and a grandkid. Uh, and then he took up Michael's sons. All right. Michael was married to David. Michael was married to David. Okay, and remember when David volunteered to kill Goliath, there were three things promised to, to the person who would kill Goliath wealth, freedom from taxes and the hand of Saul's daughter. Now Saul did not give David his eldest daughter. He gave her to somebody else who was supposed to be been his eldest daughter. As far as we know, she did, was never given to David. But Michael loved David, and so Saul gave Michael to David. When David was on the run, Saul took Michael and gave her to another man. And in that period of time, she gave birth to five sons. Then, when David came back into power, he said the only thing he wanted, remember when Abner came to him and said, okay, well, I'm going to help you get the kingdom. What do you want? He goes, I want Michael. <laughs> I want my first wife back. And she was taken back from her husband. And he, if you remember the story, he followed after her, wailing and crying for, for her. He obviously had fallen in love with her. She gave him five, five sons and was being taken away from him to be given back to David. What a, what a mess. What a tangled mess you have there. And then, if you remember, when David brings the, ta the, the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, into Jerusalem, he's dancing and celebrating before God, and she looks at him, and she is so angry that the king of Israel is acting like a fool, and she criticizes him, and God says, you won't have any children. So I have a feeling that this event happens before the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. And then that little statement, she had no children because her children had all been killed. And she was not going to have any more children because of her judgment on David. So I think this event happens before that event does. All right? So we, take, we get her, her five sons. And, God, and David just delivers all seven of these men to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites hang them up. And it tells us that they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything to anybody who hasn't researched it, but the barley harvest in ancient Israel was roughly April. So this is a time marker. This happens in April. Might have been, might have been a couple, you know, a couple weeks right before April, or, you know, but April to a couple weeks ahead, 
would be the normal time for the barley harvest to happen. Winter it's a barley barley and winter and winter wheats. They would grow during the winter and then they'd be harvested in in late late winter, early, early spring. Might be true. I mean Michael these aren't his boys. <laughs> these aren't his boys and they'd be a reminder to him all the time that Michael's boys were that Michael had been given away to somebody else. It's very possible that he wasn't too unthrilled, uh, that it wasn't too sad to give up Michael's, Michael's boys. Uh, which Michael's, these boys are very loosely Saul's sons. Right. Okay, because you don't usually trace through the daughter at that day and age. So, uh, so these are Saul's descendants, but very, very loose definition of, of Saul's descendants by David's approach here. Uh, so they hang them up, and it says they all fell, to, fell at the beginning of the of the harvest. So this indicates that the famine's kind of breaking. They're they they're getting they're getting some harvest out of this, at least in barley. All right, verse ten. And Rizbah, the daughter of Arai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beast of the field by night. And it was told David that Rizpah, the daughter of Arioch, the concubine of Saul, of what she had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Beshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, and when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up hence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hung. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, the king, after that, God was entreated for the land. All right. Rizpah, the mother of two of the children that have been, been uh, sentenced to death for Saul's sin, goes out. She takes sackcloth and spreads it upon the rock, and she's watch, basically she's watching over the bodies. She's not going to let anything happen to their bodies to, you know, as she's going out there. And she says she stayed out there from the beginning of the harvest until the rain dropped or the rainfalls came. Uh, one of the things about that I know very little about, but I remember being told about, is that in the wheat and, 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 and grain seasons, you would harvest them during the dry spell. And if you harvest them, especially on the wheat and everything, and, and straws, you can't harvest them at all when they're wet. So rain causes you problem with these harvests. So in April, there's very little rain, and they would harvest this, harvest this product. And so this woman goes out looking for wherever they hung them, on the walls or wherever, and she spreads out a sackcloth and she's camping out. She's staying outside, she's staying outside by the bodies, morning, noon, and night, sleeping there, making sure that nothing touches basically her sons, but you know, uh, Michael's sons get involved in this because they're in the same place. But it says she doesn't, she suffers not, not the birds of the air by day nor the feast by night. 
So she's keeping, she's keeping guard over them. Nothing is going to go eat <laughs> these bodies while they're out hung. And this tells us these bodies were out for a long time. Okay. Uh, she's out there for at least the entire barley harvest, a one-month period. You know, a month, a, roughly a month that these bodies are hanging. Well, she's trying to protect them. And the more, rotting, the more rotted they get, the more she's going to have to drive away the crows and the vultures and, and everything, and the carrion, the carrion uh, beasts are going to come around. So toward the end there, she's spending a long time keeping things off, you know, keeping things away from these bodies. That's dedication. She's barely sleeping for a month, you know, because every time she goes to sleep, something's going to happen. So she, either that or she has lots of help, which it doesn't indicate that she had any help. She's out there watching, keeping guard. She's being the mother. My son's bodies are not going to be desecrated. They're bad enough that they were hanging. And again, this is a violation of Jewish law. Nobody was to be hung past sunset. That was one of their rules. And this is over a month. So we have many sunsets that they've been hung up. I uh, remember when the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees came to the Romans when Jesus was crucified, they go, it's our law that nobody hangs overnight. And this is, and by the way, this is not just any night because they, they hung bodies up. I mean, the, the Romans didn't care. But this one, they were going, we want these bodies down. It's Passover. We don't want dead bodies hanging on the crosses. And they asked them to be taken down. And what they referred to was back in the Torah, our, our scriptures say, don't let anything hang, you know, let, don't let the body hang overnight. And they buried Jesus' body just as it prophesied that it would be buried. So we see this. And these people, again, they're being killed by the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites don't care about the Jewish laws because they're in their town and they're hanging it. Rizpah's watching over the, the bodies. And then in verse 11, it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Arai, the concubine of Saul, had done. I think at this point, David's feeling a little sorry, okay? Uh, hanging a body for a month. And I don't know how decomposed a body will become in a month, but I'm sure it was having trouble hanging. Pieces are probably starting to you know, fall off, I would imagine, even after a month. This is not a good thing. David's probably regretting you know, having allowed this to happen. I don't think he expected them to do this. I mean, I think the giving us would have just kept them in there until nothing was left. You know, this is, this is their <laughs> revenge. And sometimes when people are living on revenge, things can go way too far. You know, when anger starts going in, they just hung those battle bodies up. And I can't imagine having a body hanging anywhere near my town, you know, and seven of them falling apart, decomposing. Especially Spain, I mean. Got a stink. <laughs> And Rizbah's sitting right there, very close to the close enough to the bodies that nothing is going to touch them. And if it's if it's true in my thought that things are falling off, you know, because of how long it is, she's making sure that no animals touch, you know, no coyotes, no no fox, no wolves are going around those pieces falling off. I mean, this is this is dedication that she's got on it. And David hears of this. And then he decides to do something kind of interesting. It says in verse 12, David went and took the bones of Saul 
and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead. And why were, they, why were they with Jabesh Gilead? Does anybody remember that story? Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 31, the Philistines had killed Jonathan and Saul and his brothers. They took the body, stripped them, and hung them outside their city. And the men of Jabesh Gilead snuck, in, snuck up to the city, cut them down from whatever, lifted them up, however it was, took them back to their city and buried them. All right? And that's where they stayed up until this point when David comes along to take their, take their, take their bones. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 7, David, as he comes to power, blesses Jabesh Gilead and says, you have great honor because of your honoring of Saul in his death. All right? So he blessed them. Now he's going to go back and he's going to say, okay, it's time for their bones to be properly buried where they belong. So they go back and he gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And he gets the men that have just been killed. And it says he gathers the bones of them that were hanged. So obviously more decay happens in a month than I would have expected. And, you know, I kind of think of it, because like, I saw that cow out on that on drive, and it took about a month and a half to totally turn to bones. <laughs> uh, so I guess it would be about right, about a month, you know, everything's falling down, the flesh has fallen, fallen down, and he, grabs, he takes their bones and whatever body is left. And it says that he takes them back to Benjamin and Zila and buries them in the sepulcher of Kish, who is Saul's father. All right, so, and then they said they performed all that the king had commanded. And then, very interesting statement. It says in the very end of chapter, uh, verse 14, and then, and after that, God was entreated for the land. It's kind of interesting. David waits for another month after these people have desecrated the bodies to go back to God and ask him to bless the land. And as was pointed out, God told him this, what had happened, and David didn't go immediately say, okay, God, what do I do about it? He didn't go to the priest and say, what, he did, what to do about it? He just decided to go to the Gibeonites and let them tell him what to do about it. And we need to be very careful that we always seek godly counsel in all we do, that we don't just go off and do what we think is best. Because normally, and I know in my case, when I do what I think is best, it's not always best. I need to be praying. I need to go before God. Uh, sometimes I'll make a good decision. Sometimes I won't. And do I make the best decision, even if it's a good decision? This is something I really have come to really appreciate in my life. How many times have I maybe made good decisions and not the best? You know, oftentimes we as Christians settle for good and not the best. Because we do what we think is right. We, never, we don't go before God. We don't talk to him. We don't ask him. And there may not be anything wrong or sinful in what we do. But we just settle for good. And God says, I've got so much more for you. Now, we won't know this until we get to heaven when God says, I had more for you. You, know, you settled, but I had bigger plans for you. I had greater things for you. And you settled for second best. You settled for third best. Maybe you settled for fourth best. You know, 
you didn't you didn't go for for the best because you didn't bring me in into the situation and this is something I've seen so often with people I learned the hard way I got so busy in church doing everything and I didn't do what God necessarily wanted me to do and I got burned out because I was busy doing everything that needed to be done and we need to be very careful God what is it that I should be doing How, what God what do you want me to do and then do the very hard thing stop and listen and not just go on and say God well if I'm doing wrong stop me you know too often God does not stop us there's a lot of people who say well if God opens a door walk through it I'm not one of those people because I believe Satan opens lots of doors that may not be sinful doors they're just second third fourth fifth sixth best and not best Satan will be very happy to keep us below our inheritance and here David is below his inheritance this whole picture is David not doing what he should do in honoring in God and I don't know if David didn't know the scriptures he was just so worried and you know his people are starving to death how can I fix it I don't know what leads to this whole process yeah yeah now it may have been the Gideonites that they asked to do that I don't think so it says after after that God wasn't treated for the land but I don't think David's been David hasn't been praying that much up to this point uh, you know he's you know and this is the funny thing about it. we see so often that David prays God what should I do especially when it's wartime and when it's at wartime God's always asking God do I go up against this do I not go up against this but it seems like when he's at peace he forgets about God how many times do we do that God I'm in real big trouble I need your help what should I do oh God everything's going so smooth I don't need you right now I can I can figure this out I can I can make all kinds of dumb mistakes on my own that I think are good because because I'm at peace we that's usually we usually that's exactly we get in trouble we make bad decisions when we are at peace there's not a hard time going on us this is one of the reasons the church tends to grow under persecution because people draw close to God because they know they need God one of the one of the most dangerous places to be in our Christian walk in our life is at a place where everything seems to be going our way and we start to pull away from God and start depending on self it happens almost all the time I stop well God you know everything's going real good maybe I don't need to read my Bible as much maybe I don't need to go to church as much maybe I don't need to pray as much and sometimes it happens just kind of naturally we just kind of float away you know uh, God I really needed you I got to be in your word I've got to be praying and God I need you I need to know what you want me to do and then everything starts going good and I go I oh, can just breathe I can just relax and the next thing you know we realize we haven't been praying near as much we're not in God's word near as much and then we find ourselves doing stupid things and saying stupid things and doing stupid things and getting in trouble and we wonder why it's because we haven't put God first in our life during that period of time now it's not a guarantee that we're going to do this but I know I've been there I've been there when things start smooth smooth sailing you kind of drift just a little bit away from God because you don't you, you're not as under pressure to seek him as much very important that we seek God constantly
David, when he was running away from Saul, everywhere he went, he was praying, asking God what he should do. What, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? When he first becomes king and he's fighting for his kingdom, God, should I do this? Should I do this? What should I do? Gets a little bit of peace in his life and doesn't entreat God near as much. <laughs> yeah, he commits, commits a major sin. But I think it was part of this was that he was not entreating God, not, not following God, not seeking after God, which led him into a very peaceful life doing things the way he wanted to, which then led to sin. You know, it's very important when we look at this. Sin has an anatomy to it. I just want to take and look at Psalm 1. I've heard it called, and I agree that it's the anatomy of sin. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay, who am I listening to, the, the godly or the ungodly? Nor, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. How do you, if you want to live and go in the wrong direction, start listening to the wrong people. Then you start hanging out with the wrong people. And then you start actually sitting in the seat with them and, and just spending all your time with them. This is something that we really can look at in our lives. Who do I hang out with? Who am I listening to for my advice? And you can even have the wrong people in church giving you unworldly counsel, giving you, you know, ungodly advice and being ways of the sinners. And this is something I learned when I was going to the Christian school for two years. There were a lot of bad kids in that school. There were kids that weren't saved. In many cases, their parents just got them in school hoping they would get saved. <laughs> hoping that, they would, that, the, that the other Christians would be a good influence on their, on their bad kids. What happened? They found the other bad kids in the school and they hung out with each other and still did bad stuff. Yes, there was a little more pressure against them than it would have been in public school. But they all got together hanging out with each other and, and causing problems. And they were a bad influence on the, many of the Christians and drugged them down. Yeah, we were, in, we were in 2 Corinthians last night. That's what you're talking about. The bad bring the good down. Almost always. Almost always. It takes a very strong, good person to stay good in the company of bad. And if they're not in the word of God, not praying with God, they are going to fall. And this is something that is very important because this is this, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. How do we stay away from sin? We stay in the law. We meditate on it day and night. And then the reward is he shall be like a tree planted it by the waters, and his leaf shall not wither you know, in its season. You know. And this is the way that we look at. David's drifting away from God as time goes on and he has more peace in his life. We do the same thing. If we're not very careful, if we're not spending our time in the word of God, we're not spending time praying, we're not spending time coming to church, hanging out with other Christians, we will start making bad decisions. And we will find we'll start listening to the wrong advice. If we're not listening to God's word, we're going to get advice someplace. And that might be the movies we watch and the television we watch and the music that we watch and the, and the other books we are reading for advice and the people we seek out. And the sad thing is, like I said, even in church, you can get bad advice. You know, I'm having a lot of trouble in my marriage. What should I do? 
well, what's been going on? And you tell them all the bad. Well, you need to get rid of that person. Well, tell me in the Bible where that, where that verse was that you just said, get rid of that person. Okay? And we need to be careful. Who's giving us advice? Because that advice usually will sound real good to the flesh. And I have a picture of a marriage, and I hear it too many times. You know, that person's mistreating you, get rid of them. That's advice that's given a lot of times in the church. Not because it's biblical, but it's my first gut reaction in the flesh. You're being mistreated. You don't deserve to be mistreated. Nobody should treat you like that. Get rid of the person. And you deserve to be happy. Well, the Bible doesn't give us any of that statements. But that's, again, worldly, worldly uh, advice. It's not, it's not a valid statement. But it is the way the world thinks. It is the way psychologists believe. You know, we're we are created, you know, they don't believe created. We exist to be happy. And if you're not happy, you need to do something to make yourself happy. Well, I am so glad that God says we're not here to be happy. We're here to serve him and do his pleasure. And sometimes his pleasure is not very comfortable. You know, many times his way, because it's against the flesh. The flesh is desperately wicked. We're told in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? If, I, if we give free reign to our heart and the flesh, it will seek happiness. What's happiness by the world's terminology? Whatever makes me feel good. If it hurts somebody else, it doesn't matter because I feel good and that's all that matters. That's what makes me happy as long as I feel good. If somebody else suffers because of it, I don't care. That's not God's way. God says, you put him first, and then you help others. And we get put down at the bottom of the list. And God takes care of us. Yeah. And that's really, you know, if you've ever heard the acronym for joy, Jesus, others, yourself, that brings joy. We, we deal with God first, and then we help others. That doesn't mean we totally ignore ourselves. <laughs> You know, okay, God, I just got to feel miserable. What can I do to make myself feel miserable, God, so I can help others? No, that's not what it means. But I do look at the needs of others and say, God, how can I help others? What can I do to make others feel good? Jesus, others, yourself. Jesus, others, yourself. And, you know, if everybody's following that, especially in the Christian realm, and we're hanging out with other Christians, and other people are trying to make us important to them, Think about this. If I'm trying to make myself feel good, I've got one person trying to make myself feel good. If I and all the other Christians are reaching out to others, I have an entire body of Christ that's trying to make me feel good and treat, treat me good. I would rather have five or six dozen, 20, 30, 100 people ministering to me than just trying to minister to myself and say the heck with everybody else. And in the long run, we get very blessed because everybody's trying to bless you. Everybody's trying to say nice things to you. Everybody's trying to build you up. Everybody's trying to help you. And you're trying to help them. And we end up with a body that's helping each other instead of a whole bunch of individual cells fighting each other. And what is this individual cells fighting each other called in our own bodies? Cancer. And yet many churches are full of cancer of people trying to take care of themselves. I want what's best for me. Heck with everybody else, you know, as long as I'm happy, it doesn't matter whether anybody else is happy. I got my way. You know, everybody else is unhappy, but I got my way. And when you're not happy, you go, well, you, I'm unhappy. If somebody else is happy, they got their way. 
But you know, if we are truly reaching out to others, the body supports itself. Our physical body, if something gets cut, blood runs to the cut, and the rest of the body is temporarily deprived of that blood flow so that those cell, that cut can be healed and, and, and protected. What are we willing to do as the body of Christ for others? Are we willing to look at others and say, what's best for you? What, not what's best for me, but what's best for you. And if everybody in the body is looking after everybody else in the body, what, we would be blessed. And it would be a great place to be. Which that acronym is a good acronym to remember. Jesus is always first. God is always first. What does he want me to do? Even if it hurts me and everybody else, I do what Jesus wants me to do because in the long run, we all do better that way. Then I'm looking to, what can I do to help others? Now that doesn't mean anyway, I give away all my money, all my stuff and all that, but I look at others and say, what can be done to bless them? And then I'll look at myself last. You know, because I've got to feed myself, I've got to put, I've got to put a roof over my head, I've got, to, I've got to take care of myself to a degree, but I must also be looking at others and taking care of them. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us, Lord. Help us to learn to help others in the body and look to them and look to help them and always look at you and seek you and to watch and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.